0: We're going to have strong, incredible borders, and people are going to come into our country, but they're going to come into our country legally.
1: And I am committed to introducing comprehensive immigration reform with a path to citizenship in the first 100 days of my presidency.
2: Welcome to Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike.
3: And I'm John Prideau from The Economist. This week, we're going to be taking a look at how immigration and fear of foreigners have shaped so many of the things that we're talking about in this election season. We're
0: going to build a wall.
3: Republican Donald Trump's nomination for president, and how he got there, has made immigration one of the most supercharged issues of the 2016 campaign. His fans say he's injecting a dose of reality into the debate over America's borders. His opponents say he's peddling hate and fear. Even some of Trump's best-known supporters have avoided backing him up on ideas such as widespread deportations or making Mexico somehow pay for a border wall.
2: Hillary Clinton and her team have been thrilled to paint Trump as a nativist whose support is grounded in suspicion and racism. Hardly a day goes by without the Clinton campaign lobbing some attack on that theme. But the former Secretary of State is also walking a line on immigration herself. She has to make a compelling argument that she can deliver reform that upholds the law, but still treats people like human beings, not like numbers or enemies. And she has to do all that as the endorsed candidate of an outgoing president whose detractors have a special name for him, deporter-in-chief. Joining us now is Jose Antonio Vargas, the founder and CEO of the nonprofit organization Define American, He's a winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the maker of Documented, a film describing his own experiences living in the United States as an immigrant from the Philippines. Jose, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've spent a lot of time examining how Americans look at immigration and at immigrants, including yourself. So let's start out by asking a little bit about your own experiences and how you feel about what's going on in this election cycle as a result of that.
0: Um <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um so I as as you noted, I came to the United States when I was 12 from the Philippines. Did not find out that I was here illegally till I was 16 when I went to get, try to get a driver's license. Um and found out when I went to the DMV um that my green card was fake. That was the green card that I got, you know, to use to get to this country. Um so that's how I found out I was here illegally. Um, and then for me, the, the luck was I started becoming a journalist, you know, just a few months after that, working for my high school paper and the local community paper. And, and that was my way of, <laughs> whenever I heard on the radio or on television or read the newspaper and, you know, it said illegal this, illegal that, these illegal aliens, that was my way of kind of combating what people thought we were supposed to be, Right. From the get-go, I was be- being published and I was contributing. So I thought I should just keep doing that. I spent, you know, 14 years, 13 years doing journalism for newspapers mostly, like the Washington Post, and then outed myself publicly as an undocumented immigrant five years ago in the New York Times and started an organization called Define American, um, defineamerican.com. And it's all about trying to have a different conversation about immigration and citizenship, I don't think we can talk about immigration and not talk about citizenship. And for the past five years, you know, I've been traveling nonstop with Defiant American all across the country. I've visited maybe 48 states and done maybe more than 800 events all across the country. And I have to tell you that I think Donald Trump, who's not a, you know, he's a smart man. Uh, what I mean by that is he he knows that, Immigration is an issue that most Americans don't really understand. (laughs) He barely understands it himself, um, or so he pretends he doesn't understand it. And I think he's done a really um, good job using this issue as a central part of his campaign um, to try to point a finger as to whom this country should blame. Right. You know, Americans in general are struggling and they want someone to blame. And Donald Trump has pointed his finger and said, blame them. And they want someone to blame, so they're kind of following suit. And so they think we're the ones to blame. So I-, I am not at all surprised, given the amount of traveling I've been doing and the conversations I've been having for the past five years, that Donald Trump you know, is not only the Republican nominee, um, has a serious chance of winning the presidency.
3: Jose, as you say, immigration has been a very big Issue In the election so far, you see it in the polling. It's partly because Donald Trump has made it such a big an issue. But you also get the sense that he was pushing at an open door. When people talk about immigration in the country and in the campaign, um, particularly Trump supporters, I'm thinking here, I mean, do you think what they mean is really immigration, i.e. there are lots of people crossing the border into America, or actually are they talking about something different? Are they talking about the way in which the country is becoming more diverse, you know, neighborhoods are changing, and they see that and they conclude that it must be because lots of people are coming in from the outside, which is not in fact true if you look at the numbers, right?
0: Well, I mean, I actually think that has been part of the strategy with Donald Trump is basically blurring the lines between legal immigration and illegal immigration, right? I mean, he wants us to do, quote unquote, extreme vetting of all immigrants, right? And I the last speech, the 10-point plan that he gave last week was talking about how we need to rethink who is best to assimilate to America. And you know, when I was listening to it, and I was wondering, you know, what did we think of when it was Germans and Scottish and Irish people, right? Like, did, it, did we question back then, like, how well could they assimilate to America? Actually, yes, we did. We did question it, right? But the difference with migration, you know, from 200 years ago or so, um, even predating Ellis Island, right, was that all of these European immigrants, you know, got to be white, Right? Like, they all fall into this umbrella in America of, quote-unquote, being white. Um, Well, Asians and Latinos are never going to be white, right? When Donald Trump says these people are taking American jobs, why can't any of the journalists actually cite the fact that undocumented labor in this country are not only making sure that we have fruits and vegetables that we're eating with our salads and hamburgers, but are actually indispensable, Why have we accepted the frame that all we're doing, that all these immigrants are doing are, quote-unquote, taking, taking, taking? Now, as I'm talking to you right now, I'm sitting in my office in a conference room here in downtown Los Angeles. I employ, between Define American and a media startup called Emerging Us, I employ about 20 people. So if I get deported, 20 people, U.S. citizens, are going to lose their jobs. So why isn't that part of the narrative? Can I ask
3: something about enforcement of immigration law? I've done a bit of reporting on deportation, which is a huge deal in America, an incredibly complex system that Department of Homeland Security has built up that's able to gather up several hundred thousand people a year, put them in deportation centers. You know, there's a daily flight down to Central America. You have ICE agents handcuffed to people, setting off from American airports to all over the world to kind of deposit them um, back in other countries. Now, clearly, even if you had a good comprehensive immigration reform, you know, kind of tomorrow, you'd still be in a position of having immigration law and having borders which needed to be enforced, unless you get rid of borders altogether, which I don't think anyone's suggesting, right? Is there any kind of humane way to enforce those laws? Or is it in the nature of them that
0: you know, you're splitting up families and doing tough things. I'm, I'm sorry to being a, an annoying journalist, and I'm going to turn around the question to you, given that you've reported on this. Isn't it fascinating that while Donald Trump talks about, you know, quote-unquote, a, you know, a deportation force, right, that for the most part, the American public does not know that President Obama has deported more immigrants than any other president in the history of this country? Isn't that fascinating?
3: Yeah, it's also true that Donald Trump made an announcement the other day that he would prioritize the deportation of people who'd committed criminal offenses in the U.S., which yes. is already the administration's which is po- already, policy, as you know. And,
0: and I actually think Donald Trump is just plainly confused. I mean, I think he's plainly confused about his own wife's immigration status, right, which is which has not been really talked about. He She was supposed to give a speech about her immigration status and all the innuendo that's around there, but we haven't seen that speech. But But to your point— when I came out as undocumented five years ago, I prepared myself for everything. I prepared myself to get deported. I prepared myself to get arrested. I, what I did not prepare for was the situation that I find myself now in, which is this limbo land, right? Like, I, I had admitted, against the advice of my own lawyers, to admitting to everything I had to do to stay here, right? You know, committing fraud, actually pretending that I was a U.S. citizen even though I'm not, on paper, that is. So part of my job, part of my goal in doing that is to insist on asking these harder questions. Like, I don't understand why President Obama has deported more than two million people, and I'm not one of them, because apparently I haven't committed, quote unquote, you know, a grave crime.
2: I'm curious, Jose, to uh, ask you a question about about the idea of of how the rules should be some people would certainly look at you and say that you have accomplished a lot of things, that you, have, that you employ people, that you have done uh, worthy work in, in journalism or in, in activism and, and defending and advocating for immigrants. But didn't you jump the line? And if there are other people who are, quote unquote, playing by the rules, uh, why is it fair that people who don't, are not penalized for some way in that. I guess my question is, how do you balance out the needs of people who are already here uh, and people, uh, people who are seeking citizenship and, and aren't sure why there are some rules for some people and some for different rules for other people?
0: I'm so glad you asked me that question because if I, uh, if I could spend a lot of my time and I have been doing this for the past five years, getting in front of as many conservative Republican audiences who ask me that question of, you know, sir, with all due respect, we appreciate everything that you've done, but you've broken the law and you've jumped behind, you've jumped in front of people. And what I say to them is, I admitted to breaking these immigration laws. I admitted it myself without pressure from anybody. And the reason of doing that is so I can tell you what it's like. Why do I have to make these choices, right? So I've I've already admitted to it myself. The second thing is I don't want to bump anybody off the line. I don't want for anybody to think that I should be given or people like me should be given a priority. Now, mind you, as I'm sitting here as an employer, I actually have no rights, right? I, I provide health insurance to employees, the same health insurance that I myself cannot get, Right? Even though I've been here for 23 years, the only piece of paper that shows that I'm of anything is my driver's license from the state of California, which is not valid anywhere else but in California, right? Give me a line. Give me a process. If you, think I, if, if you think the line should be, you know, 10 miles long, if you think I should wait 10 years to be an American, yes, sure, I'll wait. What choice do I have? It's not about making undocumented people the priority because we are not, right? We are not the priority. I mean, the laws tell us that every day. The way people talk about us like we're criminals off, you know, like we're insects off people's backs tell us that we are not. So I really try to come to this work with as much humility as possible, but as much as possible with as much truth telling as possible, right? What's the crime? What laws did my mom actually break? What have you done to earn your American citizenship? If you think I should earn mine, well, what have you done to earn yours?
3: Jose, I think we can all agree that if Donald Trump's elected president, the chances of any kind of immigration reform that would provide, you know, regular status for the 11 million odd people who are in America without uh, documents, you know, there's zero chance of that happening or close to zero chance. If Hillary Clinton's elected president, she said that she would pass you know, or push for comprehensive immigration reform within her first hundred days. But most people, at the moment, anyway, think that Republicans will hang on to the House. That means that we're going to be in the same situation that we've been in for the past um, few years, where immigration reform has been blocked in Congress. If that's the case, what happens to the movement of which you're a part? You know, what are the goals that you set yourself if a Comprehensive immigration reform kind of again looks like it's out of reach um, come come January
0: 2017. Well, 88% of the total population growth of this country in the next 50 years are going to come from mostly Latinos and Asians. In a country that, you know, since its inception has been thought of as a black and white country. So to me, passing immigration reform is just one part of this. A big part of it is how do we change the culture in which people talk about immigrants in this country, you know? And again, I'm saying this as a gay man. In this country, we have come to a point where being homophobic is culturally unacceptable. You know, when, when actors like Alec Baldwin or Tracy Morgan say something homophobic, it's news. They have to apologize. But in this country, being anti-immigrant, not only is it culturally acceptable, it may actually just win you the White House, Right. So I guess what I would
2: want to ask you is, how how long does it take to change something like that culturally? And then also, what do you see as the best way to
0: deal with it from a policy standpoint? I don't think we can have a policy conversation about this issue until all our politicians actually have a fact sheets in front of them. <laughs> Meaning, here are the facts about illegal immigration in America, right? Like, for example, the fastest growing undocumented population are Asian people. Asian immigrants are the fastest growing undocumented population in this country, not Latinos. In this country, undocumented workers have given, have contributed about $100 billion into Social Security. And who, the, and who is the source of that information? The Social Security Administration. The chief actuary of the Social Security Administration actually says that it is possible that undocumented workers have helped keep Social Security solvent. Undocumented workers across this country in every one of the states pay taxes, local and state taxes. So it's important, I think, when we make these policy decisions that we are on the same page about what the facts are. But I am convinced that... This cultural work, this work of figuring out how modern era immigrants documented and undocumented and how they fit in American society, that is, that is what I'm here to do. And I am committed to doing it for as long as I can do it. And that is in honor of the sacrifice that my family made to get me here.
2: Jose Antonio Vargas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
3: you so much for having me. One of the strange things about the immigration debate in 2016 is how out of whack people's perceptions are with the numbers. Those numbers suggest that actually more people have migrated from the US to Mexico so far this decade than went in the opposite direction. That impenetrable, physical, tall, powerful, beautiful wall that Donald Trump promises to build might not have quite the effect he thinks it would. To run us through what's really going on with immigration is Doris Meisner, Doris used to run the federal agency that became Immigration and Customs Enforcement. She's now a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. Doris, thanks for joining us. Thank you. First off, please can you explain to us what's really going on with U.S.-Mexico immigration? What explains this big change? You know, most people, particularly those I suspect who go to Trump rallies, think that there are lots of people migrating from Mexico to the U.S. The numbers say otherwise.
1: The numbers definitely say otherwise, as you've uh, explained. So let's talk a little further about that. We've seen more people returning to Mexico in the last basically six years than coming from Mexico to the United States. We had a great what we call the Great Recession in the United States. And although there's been job recovery from the recession in 2007, 2008, it has not been the kind of uh, robust recovery that, provided the same level of jobs and uh, opportunity in the U.S. for people coming from Mexico. It's also been a recovery that is into a different kind of an economy. The economy is just not producing the same volume of lower skilled and unfortunately lower paid positions that were so much a part of what the illegal immigration from Mexico had been about for really the prior almost 40 years. So what we're seeing is less job demand in the United States. We're also seeing the real payoff from incredible investments in enforcement that the United States has made over the course of a about 15 years, at least since 9-11, and in many ways starting before 9-11, in southwest border enforcement, so that billions of dollars have been poured into strengthening the southwest border. Uh, Donald Trump likes to talk about building the wall. The fact of the matter is that we actually have fencing, we've called it fencing, you could call it call it a wall, it's all the same thing, uh, along almost a third, well, really a third of the border, as it is is. And that fencing that exists is part of a great deal of infrastructure and increased personnel that have been added to border enforcement, particularly since 9-11. There are more than 21,000 border patrol officers now. It's a it's a doubling in just the last 15 years. There, So the enforcement is important and the enforcement is working. And then, of course, there are the changes in Mexico. And the changes in Mexico are significant. Mexico is becoming more and more of a middle class country. It certainly continues to have its problems, but it's levels of economic growth have been uh, respectable, have been sustained. They did not have the same kind of a recession at all that the United States had. So more people are seeing a future for themselves in Mexico. And Mexico has also had a very important demographic change. Its birth level, its fertility levels have fallen basically to the point that they're on a par with the United States, there are less young people entering the labor force, uh, there are jobs and job creation at at least the levels of younger people coming into the labor force, so there's a real structural change in Mexico that's taking place that is contributing to that as a result of substantial deportations from the United States, substantial difficulties getting across the border in the way that it would have been in earlier decades, that's led to this no net new immigration from Mexico to the U.S.
2: It's interesting that you say that because what you tend to hear a lot is sort of, if only we would enforce the laws that we already have on the books, things would be so different. Are you saying that 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 wouldn't be the case, that actually enforcement is, is pretty up to snuff?
1: Well, we're, we're right now, just take this as a comparison. In the year 2000, we were making 1.7 million apprehensions at the southwest border. Today, 15, 16 years later, that number has dropped to somewhere, for Mexicans, somewhere around 170,000. That's an extraordinary change. We still, of course, have problems at the southwest border. There are problems of drugs. There are problems of arms. I'm not in any way suggesting that we don't need southwest border enforcement. We absolutely do. But the issue of illegal immigration of Mexicans coming to the United States to work is changed dramatically. And so, you know, you could say— as I think probably Donald Trump would say, that there should be zero, that nobody should be able to get across the border. That's unrealistic. We don't ask that of law enforcement. We don't expect that of law enforcement in any areas of the country. So the southwest border is probably now at a reasonably steady state where Mexican immigration is concerned. The challenges now have shifted to the challenge of people coming from Central America, but the people that are coming from Central America trying to cross the Southwest border are a different story. They're basically turning themselves over to the border patrol. And they are wanting to come before immigration judges, ask for political asylum because they're fleeing violence and uh, chaos, lack of governance in Central America. That's not a good situation either. And we have to have responses to it. But those are different responses. And those are much smaller countries.
3: And Doris, if you're talking illegal um, immigration, what's the picture in terms of, you know, I guess we have to go on the statistics we have, which invariably when you're measuring something that's illegal are not perfect. But what's your guess as to whether more people cross a land border or fly into the country and overstay their visas?
1: The overstaying of the visas has always been the underappreciated or the under-undertold story about illegal immigration in the United States. The best figures that we have, and they're not good, because uh, these are estimates that are not well tracked by the. By government agencies. But our the best estimates are that about 40% of the population in the United States that is illegally here, the population that does not have legal status, and that's a number of about eleven million at the present time, that about forty percent of those people overstayed their visas. So they came here as tourists, or they came as foreign students, or they came as, you know, cultural business reasons, and their visa expired, and they've stayed. Now, that's a whole nother part of illegal immigration that has nothing to do with the southwest border, and it, of course, does have to do with visas and how visas are issued, but that's these are people that got their visas, presumably— properly it's just that they're they either changed their mind or they just decided that um, once they had a visa and were in the United States they would stay.
3: Doris Meisner, thank you very much.
1: Thank you
2: That's it for this week. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play or wherever you get your podcast.
3: This episode was produced by Zach Mack.
2: Thanks so much for listening. If you want to help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike and Celeste Katz NYC on Twitter.
3: And I'm John Priddo at The Economist or at John Prudeau on Twitter. See you next week for another episode.